Welcome back to D.L. Hughley Uncut. Our first guest is an American commentator, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and novelist. It's Leonard Pitts, Jr. <laughs> How you doing, Leonard? I'm good. How are you? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm excellent. I got to tell you this. I think that you, you're my favorite uh, journalist, uh, and, I, and I say that uh, every time I talk to you. But, um, but lately, I would say the last few years, your uh, writing, uh, uh, the focus point of your writing, hasn't been as optimistic as it usually had been. Like, there, <laughs> so, <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't it's exactly like, well. the most optimistic motherfucker I was reading. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, yeah. Why was that, and and what do you think? Uh, will happen now? Well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with two com conflicting imperatives, if I can say that. I think as a columnist, one, one imperative is to always give people some sense of, you know, this is the way out, or this is what we can do better, or this is how we shall overcome, you know, some kind of happy ending. The other imperative is to tell the truth. And, you know, usually those things are not in conflict, but in the depths of Donald Trump's America, they became kind of hard to, it became kind of hard to tell the truth and yet also leave you, you know, doing this. Right, you know, right, kind of, right. You know, that's, that's, yeah. that's I, I, I tried, I really tried. But I'm not, the one thing that I can't do as a writer is lie. You know, I mean, that's just, to me, if, if, if I'm lying, you'll know it. That's right, how I feel. Right, if what I If what I say is not coming from here, you're going to know it. So... I can't lie. So yeah, I have I have been you know less optimistic than I have been than, than in previous years. I, I guilty as charged. What would you say um, did the results of of, uh, of last week's uh, election did they harden you? Did they crystallize anything? Did they were they a relief or what? What exactly would you say? How would you quantify your emotional uh, kind All of? of all of the above. It, it's it's you know it's certainly better than the other alternative. <laughs> but, <Man. laughs> Before we get into deep analysis, let's just be clear. Uh, you know, it, it was a great step back to or, or forward to what we need to be. But the thing that I keep telling people is it's only a step because, as, and it's become cliche at this point, Donald Trump was not the illness. Donald Trump was the symptom of the illness. Right. So, right. you know, we, 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 we may have excised the symptom of the illness, but we still have to deal with the with the illness. So. Now, now, you know what's interesting? How can you uh, diagnose and, and treat an illness when 71% of Americans, 71 million Americans didn't believe there was an illness and that this was the appropriate uh, response to it, that they believed that we were heading down the right path yeah. under this leadership? So I don't, I don't know what the chances are of having an effective outcome if most people don't even think there's anything wrong. Exactly. Uh, the, the, the point that I made in a recent column, you know, yeah, I'm glad to see this happen, but... Seven million more people voted for this guy after he destroyed the economy, <laughs> after 236 million, uh, 236,000 of our people died who didn't have to die, most of them in, in the pandemic, after, you know, all the racism, sexism, misogyny, incompetence of this guy. Seven million more people looked at him and said, yeah, that, more, that's More, I please. Mm -hmm. That's my boy. I was reading your article, and I said, you got to get him back, because... Okay, I, I read it, but tell the people what the last name of your of your last uh, editorial was. Well, it depends. I don't know what the last one you saw is. Are you talking about the one uh, in terms of people asking uh, for reconciliation? Yes, yes, it's exactly that one. Yeah, the last time that column went something to the effect of, please don't ask me uh, about um, what I'm going to do to reconcile with, with Donald Trump supporters. Uh, better, better question, ask them what they will do to reconcile with me. 
And you make the point that constantly black people always have to sacrifice their needs for what they're told is the good of their country. For what they're told yeah. is the yeah. is, is the idea if we want America to move forward. They did it in slavery. They've done it. There've always been uh, the these even even to some degree the Obama Obama administration gave up a lot of things that to right. the detriment of black people for for what we believe would be better for America and we never get our return for it. I saw that article and I agreed with you. I think that every time white people get mad, lose and get mad, we give them something. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we give them something or we go out of our way to sell their feelings or whatever. And I'm just not feeling it. Yeah. And again, you talk about, you know, not being optimistic. And I look at having that feeling. OK, if everybody feels like I feel and, you know, there seem to be a lot who do, then how do we go forward from here as one country? Well, you know, one nation, indivisible, all that other good stuff. And the answer is, I don't know. Well, it's, it's simple. Really it, to know. me, it really is a simple thing. I think that we have to understand the one thing about Republicans that I've learned, particularly under Donald Trump, They'll mm-hmm. take a lot of the bad to get the good, to get the things they want. All the racism, want. all the misogyny, all the hatred, that's bad. But I got the tax cuts and the judges I want. So they will look, the, really, so they'll look the other way while these yeah. terrible things happen. They will hold their nose and more of them will decide that whatever they got was worth the deal they made with the devil. And I think the people in charge, the one thing Republicans should have taught this administration is not just to have power, to weld it, to use it. And to use it to the people who have supported you. Yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, that, that's the key thing to use it to for the people who have supported you, and that's the one thing for me. Democrats have have failed to do a Absolutely. lot. Uh, they are always Democrats are like the guy who has a girlfriend who maybe is not the most attractive girl, you know. And so while we're behind closed doors, we all bund up and we all boo. But when when we're out in public, I don't don't, don't walk so close to me. Right. That sort of thing. Let's not That's talk about my weekend endeavors later. Let's stick to the point. You need to stick to where we're at. <laughs> but but that, that's how, to me, that's how they treat black sure. voters. That's how they treated black voters for years. You know, there's lip service, but when it, when it comes to, okay, we're in front of the entire country, and we need to talk about the things that we need to do for African Americans, then suddenly they get a little bit more mumble mouth. You know, and I, you know, I'm tired I, of it. I think you're right. I think that this notion of appealing to a rural voter, there's a mythic and never, you know, there are myths, there are things that they will never, ever, ever vote for you. They never will. You know the last time a majority of white voters voted for Democrat, right? No. Lyndon Johnson was in office, okay? Right. So <laughs> They have not had the majority of right. white voters since then. Okay, since 1960, uh, I think four was the last election where a majority, where where Democrats had a majority of the white vote. Hadn't happened since the, and and what happened between 1964 and 1968 to change that? Little thing called the Voting Rights Act. Right. Oh, you're going to give Negroes the right to vote? Right. As Lyndon Johnson said when he signed it, we've lost them. Yeah, forever. Lyndon Johnson said we've lost the South for, the only thing he got wrong was he said we've lost the South for 25 years. No. Lyndon been longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> Why you bullshit, Linda? I think that this time, I think this time, okay, there was an incredible, it's, it's, it's very hard to beat an incumbent president, no matter what. It's, it's, it hasn't happened that many times in our history. And particularly one that is corrupt and will use the lovers of power legally or illegally. You'll steal uh, mailboxes. You will uh, take out sorting machines. You will, you will uh, enlist, uh, you know, armed thugs to kind of intimidate people. You will, you will put judges in place you think give you an advantage. It's like having a cheat code in a game. 
Um, and and he still won. He still lost. I don't think he's as shocked that he lost. I think because he, I didn't think he thought he more people would vote for him. I thought he thought all the cheating he would do would help him win. But yeah. there's never been a clearer example of the importance of black and brown people because he didn't. Biden didn't win Georgia. He won Atlanta and Athens. He didn't win <laughs> Wisconsin. Yeah. He won Milwaukee and Racine and yeah. Philly. He won Pittsburgh and, and, and Pittsburgh. He won Philly and Pittsburgh. And just like in 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 Vegas, he won. In Nevada, he won Vegas, and in Phoenix, and Arizona, he won Phoenix. He won with large uh, uh, concentrations of black and brown people. And the caveat being that they threw the entire uh, wealth and power and pomp and circumstance of the presidency and the white vote behind them, and still lost. So you, he, people now can understand you can win just doing right by the people who support you. Wow, what a novel concept. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to for them that support it. I'm I'm going right. to chase folks that don't care about me. Right. I'm going to do for them that support me. You've never had to explain that to the Republicans. I don't see the Republicans. I, I used to write columns back in the 90s begging the Republicans, please, you know, chase the black vote. But I don't I don't think it's healthy that one party has a monopoly. Right. OK, right. That's, that's how they get to take us for granted. And I the Republicans, <laughs> I'm still waiting on the Republicans to answer me. They have not changed. Well, they gave you Lil Wayne. You got Lil Wayne and Ice Cube. <laughs> and Ice Cube, yeah. Republicans <laughs> don't need the black vote. They don't, so they don't care. They, they pay enough lip service. You know, they, they say something nice on, you know, Martin Luther King Day and, you know, the anniversaries, whatever. But other than that, they don't care about right, us. Right, right. And, and, and the Democratic Party needs to come to understand, we're, we're who you got. We're who you date. Right, I'm sorry. Right. You know, we, right. We, we're, we're it. You right. Know, us and and some of the Hispanic brothers and sisters, and a minority of white folks. Right. That's it. That's, That's your what you got. That's right. your base. Right. It is, yeah. you know, when, when it's always funny because they always go, look at the map, it's so much red. All that means to me is white people got a lot of room. They got a lot of, like, yeah. a, they got a lot of space. <laughs> no wonder you guys are mad. Um, so what do you think... Um, I think that your approach is absolutely right. I think that the outcome should not be I'm going to supplant uh, the wishes of those who have been my supporters for this mythic notion or this idea of somebody who hasn't will. And what would that look like to you? Uh, what, what the Democratic Party needs yes. to do? It would, it would look like more programs designed to, to alleviate uh, income inequality, programs designed to alleviate uh, you know job loss in the in the in the in the urban core housing it would look like you know education it would look like if, if, what can we do about these food deserts and and Lord knows it would look like I don't even know how I forgot to name this number one it would look like uh, doing something to get a hold of these you know renegade uh, police departments. Mm. You know, I don't know how that came to be number five on my list. No, but I think that they're all, if, if they all, they kind of rotate. I mean, I think that they're equally, yeah. but but you're absolutely right. Once they stop killing us, we got to live somewhere. <laughs> we got to, we got to, That's we got to go to school somewhere. <laughs> I, I think that article spoke, spoke volumes. And I think that there's always, you know, well, you know, I remember when me and my brother would have a fight. And my mother would make me apologize because she knew that my brother wouldn't. You know what I mean? She would make me apologize because she knew I wouldn't. And in the end, she just wanted peace. And I think that too many times they have just wanted back black people to shut the fuck up and go away because these dudes with guns and rebel flags ain't going to go away. So I'll just give them the electoral college or whatever else they need to make sure that they feel like I, I hurt them. It's got to be a different day. 
Because see, what they what they're trying to do is bring, is is make this South Africa circa 1985. They know that in a very short time they will not have the numbers, and so there's nothing they can do about that. But they want to be able to have the power, even if they don't have the numbers. Again, South Africa 1985, and we can't we cannot sit still and and, and allow that. None of us who believe in in, in you know, in what this country is supposed to be about, can stand, can sit back and allow that. So this whole idea of, you know, this whole idea of this false equivalence, or or we all have to apologize, or we all have to reconcile. No, Mm-mm. we ain't wrong. Period. <laughs> that it's part. Like, it's, like, it's like I saw this uh, on, on on Facebook uh, today. You know, between between the murderer and the murdered, between the rapist and the and the rape person. You know, there's no half. There's, there's no middle ground. You know, one side is right. One side has been has no. One side has been done wrong. The better way to put it, one side has been victimized, and the other side has been the victimizer. And so it's up to the people who've done the victimizing to 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 make the other side whole. They need to repent, you know, and then and then uh, fix, you know, repent and repair what they've done. <laughs> Yeah, repay. They need repay. <laughs> <laughs> repay. Don't forget that one. <laughs> well, the three R's is better than the three K's. I know that. That's, well, that's, that's, that's that. that. <laughs> Hey man, it's always good to talk to you, man. Keep doing. Well, you know what? I'm looking forward to your uh, your, your articles, perhaps being a little more. They'll, they'll be tinged with a little more optimism. Like, He's like the short, the short day of journalists. Jesus maybe. Christ. He's like, let me think about it. Yeah, we'll see. When, when, when I can do it truthfully and, and feel like, okay, I told the truth about what I feel, then, then that's what you'll get. Good deal, man. It's always mm-hmm. good to see you. Later. You're the best, man. I'm telling you, looking forward to, looking forward to reading those articles. Take care. Thank you, sir. Take Thank care. You, man. Take care. Our next guest is the co-writer, producer, and director of the film, Antebellum, which is currently number one on Fandango for the third week in a row. It's Gerard Bush. Hey, young man. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Doing good. That's a winner's dance. I yeah. saw you doing that. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> three weeks in a row. <laughs> uh, congratulations. That's a hell of an accomplishment. Thanks, man. Like this whole thing, uh, the experience with the backdrop of everything going on in the world feels even more surreal. Um, but you know, you have to count your blessings when you get them. So I'm incredibly grateful that uh, we're in this position that we're in. I have a weird theory. I think we're in a position we're in, I'm talking about what social activism is on the forefront. And perhaps some of the things, and I think one of the reasons for that is because so many people are home uh, and some of the distractions are gone, that they're seeing things uh, in different ways and seeing things that they perhaps uh, wouldn't have looked at it other, at other times, and I think it, it says a lot right now that the stories that 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 men and women like uh, in your position are telling are so nuanced. Why do you think? Uh, because you 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 don't just write, but this movie clearly <laughs> says a lot of it. Like Antebellum's to me mm. was a, like Antebellum has been a a musical group. It's now it, it's been a source <laughs> well. of torture for us. But it, now it's where white people get married. <laughs> so so so. But you found a way to tell stories to be entertaining, uh, to be informative, and to be bracing. Uh, this is a very and I think this is encompasses all. Of, it, do you feel like that's your responsibility? 
look, I think that as a black artist, as a black American, as a citizen who's really concerned about the state of black America at the hands of white America, and by that I mean uh, either an indifference or uh, deriving direct benefit from the privilege of whiteness and not doing anything to, to correct the record, me as an artist, as a black artist, as a black American specifically, I feel a tremendous responsibility to tell the truth. And I think so many of us, um, whether we know it or not, we've, we've served as co-conspirators in performing the lie. And by that, I mean that the lie of the country's noble founding. The country was founded on the backs of stolen bodies and free labor. And my people, our people, are still suffering the residue results of that. And I can't tell a story or put something on the screen or put pen to paper without doing everything I can to amplify these issues and to bring them to the broader public for us to have a dialogue that hopefully we move into meaningful action. But that's a very nuanced thing because you have to do all of that and it has to have commercial success. And people mm-hmm. still got to have buy popcorn. <laughs> they still got to do, they still, oh, wait, that, that yeah. slaves were terrible. Are those juju beats? <laughs> Not feel bad looking at it. It's true. So, so, and I, and I, in the same one, when I do comedy, I write books. I've always tried to uh, give them, my mother always said, it, I, I used to give us aspirin and orange juice. So she gave us something we liked was something in something, it was something we needed in something we liked. And I think the one thing I've seen about not only this film, but your, like this new kind of wave of, 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 of directors and writers, uh, you guys kind of embody that, where you kind of understand the, you know, the financial ramifications, uh, the commercial successful aspects, and then uh, the storytelling part. I mean, I think that we go into it knowing that, um, especially being black, that you're going to be judged probably on a, by a different barometer. Um, and we need to be commercially successful, which means that we also don't want to just preach to the choir of people that are already on board with what we're saying. We need to reach a broader audience, which right. also includes a bigger tent with white folk. And, you know, quite honestly... I think that um, not remembering the history and then having to confront it in a different way and using an access point, which hopefully this horror genre or an elevated horror is a a new way of looking at it, which I think gives people an on-ramp into slavery. Because for me, I'm really uncomfortable with watching my people in bondage. I think we all uh, can be incredibly uncomfortable with slave narratives but then at the same time we also have a responsibility not to serve as co-conspirators in the erasure of our own history and so how do i make stories or write stories or or put movies together uh that can educate us on the history while also hopefully finding some way to entertain in those those uh windows of opportunity that we have within the story for whatever could look like levity um, in such a, a serious story. I think the things that I found that, that kind of have levity or, or they can cut the treacle are things that are so soberly true with irony. And I think you've done a, a masterful job of that. What is your goal when you, because I know for, my, for me, my goal uh, is, is obviously in the end to have people listen and whatever reaction I get is what I get. But what is your goal specifically as a, as a filmmaker? 
My goal is for us to uh, change or have an awareness of the stories that we're telling ourselves about ourselves. Sure. So this is only just the beginning of a, of a much longer play. Um, ultimately, one day I would love to, you know, remake Mahogany. <laughs> I'd love, oh. I'd love, as long as I get to be a piano man, that'd be done. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make a lot of different um, movies that speak about the beauty and not the not the beauty and the resilience of who we are as black people, but the beauty of the beauty of who we are as black people. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, that is something I'd like to leave our audience with white, black, brown and everything in between is that there is a, a rich reservoir of stories to be told from the perspective of black people. And if I look at a movie like Gone with the Wind, for instance, I think that's a horror film. I think it's a direct insult to black people. I think the same thing. I think so what I did is I went and got the lenses from Gone with the Wind to shoot Antebellum on. So then I could use the same weaponry that was meant to um, create a really effective, beautiful piece of propaganda to then correct the record in modern day by recontextualizing what that is for 2020. I can't wait to see what you do wow. with the lizards from Birth of a Nation. Ain't That'll be that dope, right? <laughs> 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 uh, most of our story, all of our stories as black people in in in, in the American experience, uh, start in the middle. There was nothing before, nothing after. We always are here. And another thing is, we always kind of know what's happening because we know cause when the story starts in the middle, yeah. you don't have that much to go. And and what have you done? If you you really uh, took the historical, the imaginational, the the imagination, the imaginary, and the aspirational, and put it in one film. That's dope. Like that, I would have never thought to do. You you did three things, so let's just give you three checks. That ain't gonna happen either. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, nigga, it's he, one he check. Knew, he was like, yeah, that's probably not gonna happen. <laughs> because literally, I don't like seeing stories about black people because I know what happens. And we never have triumphs, and they always start in the middle, and we were never anything before this, and we'll never be anything after that. But the mechanism you've used in this particular film has kind of, you know, the, the ghosts of Christmas uh, past and future. And so it, it was, I, I thought it was brilliant. Oh, man, thank you. And that means a lot coming from you because you've dedicated your life to activism through comedy and through this art. And so I appreciate it. Um, I think that. Um, with Antebellum, the black women that I know, the black women that I've grown up with, the black women that have been so uh, instrumental in shaping who I am today, I wanted to make sure within the context of the story that we're telling about American slavery that, we, that we're also seeing a depiction of black women in the way that I experienced them. Uh, and so that was really important, that that, that sort of triumph, uh, which, you know, I think that we all walk around with this secret, this knowing as black people, that we come from something really extraordinary. And I'm not talking about just our time here in America. I, I, I think that, that the ancestors are constantly trying to tell us that we come from a greatness that is, is beyond our imagination. And I think that for me as an artist, as a filmmaker, that I have to use my imagination to put that on the screen so that we can remind ourselves of, of all this greatness that we have.
Yeah, I think that's so important because I think a lot of times, uh, you know, we've all heard that so, that saying that you are what you consume. So if you constantly consume images where right. we never triumph, right. or we just almost get there and no, it really kind of begins to take root in your soul. And somewhere in the back of your brain, you really feel as though, OK, well, I know try as I might. I probably won't triumph. And I think it's so sad that even as children, you know, you kind of see that and you begin to be that. And it's so good to be able to see, I guess, uh, a different image, if you will, on the screen in terms of knowing that there are triumphs and we do come from a beautiful uh, people and place and the types of lives that we lived and who we are innately still exist. I think that um, that is the that is the greatest source of pride for me. Uh, is to be black in America. It's it's my greatest source of pride. I walk around with this sense of coming from the absolute richest culture, a reservoir, as I said, sure. of such beauty. And and I'm tired of it being just about our strength and our resilience, because that also makes us, in many ways, in some of the depictions that we see, it's this superhuman quality, which that in and of itself discounts the humanity. Sure. Uh, yeah. And that that we have had to endure so much and we've still managed to have the audacity to not only survive but in some cases thrive. So I have a responsibility just like any other black artist uh, to make sure that the art that I'm expressing and that I'm keep communicating that first and foremost I have to answer to my ancestors. Yeah have to answer to where I come from and the and the stories that I want to see for black children for black people generally speaking so that we remember that within us there's always been the triumph and we we have the ability to take this situation and to turn it around I think in America right now we're we're at we've reached the precipice and what I what I mean by that is I think that we're exhausted by the performance you as know, soon as we, as soon as we stop performing, when Colin said, I'm not going to perform this anymore, I'm going to tell mm, the truth. Right. Pound of flesh. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you say that you're not, look, I got questions about America's founding. I've got questions about the things that you're saying about who we are and where we come from. I don't know if I believe that. Right. I don't know in, in, in what world should I be so prideful about a place that has, number one, I'm still walking around with the brand of that surname that you gave me. All right, Colin Kaepernick, let me tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you something. You, gotta, you, you know what's interesting, just hearing you talk, but Hollywood, I mean, storytelling is so seductive, like it, particularly uh, on the large screen. Like I remember, and, and it, like, like I remember watching Rocky, and the story mm -hmm. was so seductive that I actually rooted for the white dude. Like, the, like hey. I root, I was like, get him, Rocky! Get him! Like, <laughs> over Apollo! <laughs> at, right, over a, over a dude who was just, who was excellent. I, I wanted him to win. And I'm gonna tell you, in America, you can only get a statue if you if you brutalize black people. Even Rocky had a statue. He had to beat three niggas up to get it. Like, it was... <laughs> <laughs> but, but the way that we can be seduced, and that's why stories are so important, because 
in, in, in my natural state, in my real world, I'd have never rooted for the dude who had every advantage and just only had to reach out and grab it versus the dude who had to literally fight his way. But that's the seduction, and that's the importance of, of owning, of having ownership of the stories because they, 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 they continually perpetuate a narrative and have us buy it into it for their commercial success they, all the time. Like, I, I, want, I literally can't imagine wanting, and I wanted him to win. I mean, we have people, you know, you know what happens with with this intoxication of um, indoctrination of teaching us that everything about us is bad and everything about them is good to the point that you end up with this crabs in a barrel syndrome, this right. idea of hate that right. that that perpetuates and expresses itself through our own uh, community. And I think that we have to go back and dismantle that scaffolding that continues to support uh, inequity in the way that we are depicted on screen, in the way that we look at ourselves and allow uh, for them to tell us to forget about American slavery, but sure. they continue to sure. lubricate the the uh, the prison pipeline and right. decimate our right. peace. So, uh, what I've what I've come to understand. With, within every fiber of my being is that he, she, they that control the narrative hold the keys. Yeah. And and you were talking about our ancestors to speak, the, and I don't want to offend uh, members of my family, but the greatest black woman, when I think of, of a person who's not here, a, a black woman who's not here anymore, it's my Aunt Nita. And mm. I, she is the first time I ever really understood what love was, was, was her. Um, and even though she loved me and I was certain that she loved me, what she wanted me to do, all that they ever wanted us to do was survive. Black women wanted us to survive. They just want, that was it. I'm trying to get you from here to there and not die. I want you to survive. They not, never taught us how to live. And I think when you tell stories like you're telling in this, you take... Uh, the homage, the homage to our ancestors, but the the, uh, the the lens that they can't see through, which is not only surviving, but living and thriving, which are words that they would never say. I just, I, I can't let these streets take you. I can't, like everything was about keeping you alive. And art has a way of waking up something else inside of you. And I think that that's why it's important. You know, what you said really struck a chord with me because I, I think that I've shared a lot of those same uh, experiences with aunts and, and my grandmother, who was a phenomenal woman. Uh, but at the same time, you're absolutely right. There was this idea that we got to get you from point A to point B. And then you start navigating life as a black person where you feel that whether you recognize it or not on a subconscious level, do I deserve this? Yeah. Can Surviving have, remorse, yeah. Can I, can I be, is it okay to be good? Is it okay to, to be comfortable? And, and I think that us showing an example to ourselves, of ourselves, of triumph, of the idea that our excellence, our particular brand of humanity, it's beautiful it's resilient, but the beauty doesn't lie in the resilience. The beauty lies just in our existing, and that's enough. And I think that when we teach ourselves and we teach the community and we teach our children, most importantly, 
that we're, we've all been seeded with an extraordinary gift, which is to be black. There is so much pride in just being black. And that is, no, it's not enough. It's an extraordinary gift to have. It's up to you to decide what you're going to do. Sure, 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 sure. But I think on the, on the, the anathema to that is that you have kids and, and, and our community and, and, you know, the idea that we're being taught by the media uh, and by films that depict us as being less than the extraordinary thing that we are, that is a, that's an albatross that we need to liberate ourselves from immediately uh, in every facet. You know, uh, a lot of trailers, like I, I haven't seen the film in, in full disclosure, but I saw the trailer. And instant, because the trailers are just kind of like the thing that makes you go see it. But mm -hmm. I, I oftentimes look for the things that they're not trying to help, let me see. The thing that mm -hmm. I, I, I came away with after watching the trailer was this sense of restlessness, which I think artistically is the greatest uh, canvas you can paint for. I think mm -hmm. restlessness uh, and this, this notion of being unsatisfied and being restless is something that you need to hold on to and harness. And I think, I don't know what you'll do after this, but I think that if you keep the same spirit that got you here, because, you know, Alexander Graham Bell, in order to invent the telephone, had to want to talk to a motherfucker that wasn't even there. You know, <laughs> like, I feel like talking to people that ain't here. <laughs> and I think you have to have, uh, that. that's lunatic, that, that, that's manic, that's a sense of lunacy, and you have to have that to have, and you have to have a, a very jaundiced eye. And I think whatever you do from here, if you don't do anything else, regardless of what happens here, I mean, I don't, every every film you do, it may not be number one or every film you do, but as long as you keep that restlessness, that, that same thing that you have right now, that same itch that you can't scratch, I, I just can't imagine you do, can't do in things that are so, uh, that are indelible. And I, and, and, and I wish you the best. Oh, that means the, that means the world to me. I'll take that with me always. And I appreciate you all spending some time with me and, having a conversation about race and antebellum, and I can't wait to come back with my next movie. No, and, and when you when you take the film from A Birth of a Nation, I want you to do Shaft. I want you to take that. <laughs> no, I want you to use that film and shoot a, the new spook who sat by the door. It'll be spectacular. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank you, man. The best of you.